Well, I asked the elders and deacons to ask their children and grandchildren why or what they enjoy most about the Lord's Day. And I want to share with you some of the answers that I received. Um, number one on the list was church. Uh, going to church, Sunday school, singing at church, singing to God, singing hymns, seeing my friends who also love God, being with friends and small children at church, playing with friends at church, sleeping in, biscuits daddy makes before church, no schoolwork, most of the day at home. I'm not sure I love every part of it. Now, children, those of you who weren't asked, I'll just ask you, you don't answer out loud, but maybe you can share with mom and dad on your way home, but what do you enjoy most about the Lord's Day? Adults, what about you? What do you enjoy the most about the Lord's Day? And then for all of you, what do you think God most enjoys about His day? What if I told you that I think He enjoys, what He enjoys most is being with you? What if I told you He enjoys, what He enjoys most is being with you his people, and knowing that you enjoy Him and enjoy His day. I want us to see three things in our passage tonight from Genesis chapter 2. I want us to see first that God finished what He started. God, secondly, God rested from His work. And then finally, he blessed and set apart a day for us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we continue. Heavenly Father, in these moments, please give us eyes to see and hear, ears to hear by the power of your Spirit that we may understand the truth of your Word. Would you grant us humble and contrite spirits and keep us from all worldly wisdom? As always, I am weak and needy. I am unfit for this task to which you called me. So I ask that you would grant me grace and fill me with your spirit that I might do something good for you and for your church this evening. I, I, I desire to communicate clearly and with fluency and fervency and grace. Please grant me that ability. And I ask these things for the sake of Christ and his church. Amen. Well, you'll notice, I'm sure, that in the bulletin it says Genesis 2, 1 to 3, but Aaron began reading in chapter 1, verse 31, and that's uh, because I, hum I humbly submit that the chapter breaks between chapter 1 and chapter 2 that were either put into place around the 11th century or 13th century or somewhere in between, depending on who you read, is just wrong. Um, remember verse 1. Okay, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, Thus the heaven and earth, th- thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. Now these verses, verses 1 and, of chapter 1 and verse 1 of chapter 2, are obviously related. They obviously bracket everything that falls in between them. Uh, in uh, biblical literature, there's actually a name for that, and that's called an inclusio. So chapter 1, I believe, should have included verse 1 of chapter 2, but I also believe it probably should have included verses 2 and 3, because in verses 2 and 3, the seventh day of creation is mentioned three times, and then verse 1, that, by the way, that follows right, right behind you know, the last six days, right? So we're, we're talking about the whole week. And then uh, verses 1 and 2 are connected by a word, and that word is finished. So I really think we should have gone on through verse 3, and that's why I had Aaron read that. But what we have in the first two verses when, when Moses says that God finished, we know and are told that God finished what he started. Uh, what he had willed to do, he in fact did. The work that he had determined to do, he did. He completed He saw it to the end. What he said he would do, he in fact did. What he said he would create, he did in fact create. What he said he would bring into being, he brought into being. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. What was formless, we have seen, was was, now had form. What was empty was now filled. He accomplished his goal. And you remember that he pronounced everything as sufficiently reflective of his goodness, right? It is very good. So there wasn't, uh, it, what he created lacked nothing. It didn't fall short of his standard. It was comprehensive. It was all as he intended. Right? He didn't settle He didn't cut corners, and he also didn't create anything that was superfluous or wasteful. It was all very good. He had successfully met his goal of creating a people and then creating a place in which he could meet with that people because that was the goal of creation. You remember last week we said that man was the crowning achievement of creation. But it was his meeting with and dwelling with man that was the purpose of creation. As we learned in our study of Leviticus, the goal or aim of creation and redemption in the words of Dr. Morales was and is for God to dwell with his people in his house. And brothers and sisters, the precedent that was set the very first week has been reinforced ever ever since. God always finishes what he started. This was certainly not only the case creatively, but it was the case redemptively as well. And we don't have to go any further than John 19, verse 30, to see that to be true. John writes that on the cross, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Though he had been tempted by Satan to cut corners, he didn't do it. Though he had been threatened and maligned and mocked by the religious establishment, he would not be distracted, he would not be prevented from fulfilling the Father's will. The Father's will, through the Lord Jesus, was in fact accomplished. Christ fulfilled all of the law, 
Christ satisfied all the Father's wrath. Christ fully paid the entire debt that you and I owed. For our sin, He paid it all. His work of salvation was comprehensive. Nothing was left undone. His work of redemption was and is complete. And this, of course, should be a great, great encouragement to us. We who live in the midst of the already and the not yet, we who live as exiles, sojourners, aliens, exiles, strangers, and we live in a world filled with evil and sadness and suffering and pain and grief. And so why should we be encouraged? Well, first of all, with the work of redemption being completed by Christ, our salvation is secure and there is nothing left for us to do. He has done it all. Our justification is sure. We can cease striving and and cease working for our salvation because there is nothing for us to add to or to substitute for what Christ has done. We're not waiting for some sort of final justification, something that's going to come later once we've proven ourselves to be faithful. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And second of all, because we've been purchased with the imperishable blood of Christ, the trials of this life that we are experiencing and going through at this time are being used to purify us, to purify our faith, to sanctify us, to conform us into the image of Christ. And our sanctification, which is His will for us, will be accomplished. He will not be thwarted. That's why Paul said, He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And then thirdly, His original purpose of creation will be fulfilled. Though it tarries, Listen to these assuring words of John in Revelation 21 and Wednesday morning, ladies. See if you can hear the covenantal language. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, He said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And He said to me, It is done. It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Brothers and sisters, he who has promised is faithful. What he has started, he has and will finish. 
And that is good news. But God didn't just finish what He started. He also rested from His work. Look again at verse Verses one and two, and on the se- or two and three, and on the seventh day, God finished the work that He had done, and He had rested on the seventh day from all the work that He had done. And the question we've got to ask is, what does it mean that He rested? Because if you'll remember, according to A.W. Tozer, the quote that I uh, shared with you uh, from him, defining omnipotence back on the eighth, he said this. He said, since He since He has at His command all the power in the universe, the Lord God omnipotent, can do anything as easily as anything else. And then he said, all his acts are done without effort. He expends no energy that must be replenished. His self-sufficiency makes it unnecessary for him to look outside of himself for a renewal of strength. All the power required to do all that he wills to do lies in undiminished fullness in his own infinite being. So why rest? What is Moses saying? Well, the the word actually means to cease. So what Moses is saying is God ceased from His creative work. And that's important for us to understand because though He ceased from His creative work, He didn't didn't cease working, right? He didn't become inactive. Once His creation was complete, He began sustaining what He created. Our shorter catechism puts it this way, the works of God's providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. And in his commentary on the confession, Chan Van Dixhorn comments, he says, as we would expect from God, from a God who has decreed and created all things, God's upholding is not a basic maintenance program. He directs, disposes, and governs His creation, all of His creatures, all their actions, and all of those parts of creation that cannot act. And in the words of Paul, God is not served by human hands as though He needed anything since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. In the words of the writer of Hebrews, He is upholding everything by the word of His power. And in Jesus' own words, my Father is working until now, and even I am working. You see, if God stopped working altogether, everything as we know it would fall apart. He is is keeping the sun, moon, and stars in their orbits. He's maintaining the seasonal rotations so that we get snow on Tuesday. He's clothing the grass of the fields. He's feeding the fish and the birds and the animals. He's providing everything that we need. He's directing our steps. He is working everything together for our good. And this, of course, should also be of great encouragement to us tonight. At least for a couple of reasons. One, God didn't wind up everything like a watch and then tell it to to begin 
or turn it loose to run on, run on its own and then withdraw himself and then look at it from afar or look at us from afar. He isn't absent or inactive. He is present and active. Just as his presence when the tabernacle was finished and his presence came upon the tabernacle when his creation was finished his presence was there and he remains here he's actively involved in our lives doing what is for our uh, his glory and our good and we can rest in his providential care And secondly, what again is true creatively is also true redemptively. As the author of Hebrews also wrote, after making purification for sins, Christ sat down at the right hand of the Father, actually of the majesty on high. Why? Because His work was complete. But again, He is an inactive His redemptive work was complete in that Christ had fulfilled everything through His life and death for us. But even now, by His Spirit, He is drawing to Himself, again, by His Word and Spirit, He is drawing to Himself people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. He continues to work. So we can remain hopeful in regard to the salvation of our family and friends who are lost, who are straying, because He remains active. But the the fact that He rested means more than just ceasing from His creative work. Listen to these words of Alan Ross. He says, the word sabbat is not a word that refers to remedying exhaustion after a tiring week of work. Rather, it describes the enjoyment of accomplishment and the celebration of completion. So what Moses is saying is he's telling us that God ceased from His creative work, but having ceased from that work, then He he took a step back and He enjoyed what He accomplished. He celebrated it being perfect and complete. And by doing so, He set an example for us. He gave a a picture of what it means to rest. It was a picture of the rest that He intended for those who were created in His image and recreated by the Spirit. And notice there is no uh, sentence of or statement of delineation like the other six days. And he doesn't say there was evening and morning a seventh day. And his point was, and his point is, that the rest to which God's rest points, pointed, was and is eternal. And this eternal rest, brothers and sisters, is something that is ours by faith now. It is ours And we're to enjoy it, and we enjoy it by remembering and celebrating what Christ has done, His perfect and complete accomplishment on our behalf. But it's also something the author of Hebrews, as we heard Aaron read, 
It tells us that we are to look forward to and strive to enter. So we're to rest in it, but yet we're to strive to enter it. He says in chapter 4, he says, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter his rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What's he saying? He says we're to look to Christ in faith. We're to trust him and him alone for our salvation. We who have been recreated, we who have been redeemed and set free from the burden of our sin, we are no longer weighed down by works of righteousness or works of self-righteousness. We're not working to earn our salvation. We're not working to save ourselves. We can't do it. We can only and should only enjoy our rest. And at the same time, though we're citizens of heaven, we're still exiles on this earth, we're longing for our home, and we shouldn't be during that longing, during that waiting, we shouldn't be inactive. In other words, we're not to lose heart. We're not to give in to disobedience and unbelief. Our final day of rest is going to come. It will come. The promise is sure, but we're to rest in Christ and we're to endure and persevere and remain active and walk in a manner worthy of our calling, focusing on Christ, our Creator and Redeemer, and striving to enter to the rest. We're, we're to seek to strengthen our faith, and one of the ways we do that is by taking advantage of the day that God has given us to sustain us, and to ensure our spiritual fruitfulness, as our third point makes clear. Look at verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. Because God rested on the seventh day, He treated the seventh day completely different than He had treated any of the other previous six days, and He did so by blessing it and sanctifying it. By blessing it, He marked it as a day of fruitfulness, and by sanctifying it, He set it apart as a day that is holy and for holy use, particularly for worship. And by blessing it and sanctifying it, He mandated a rhythm of six days of work and one day of rest. In other words, he established the principle of Sabbath-keeping. And of course, the Sabbath-keeping the Sabbath was codified in the law. It was what Matt read earlier is a part of our confession of sin. Look at Exodus, here, Exodus 20, or you can turn back in your bulletin to see it. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Our confession describes this creation mandate or creation ordinance or Sabbath-keeping principle, however you want to define it as a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment binding all men in all ages. That means just as work was a creation ordinance, 
Just as marriage is a creation ordinance, just as procreation is a, is a um, creation ordinance, the Sabbath and Sabbath keeping is a creation ordinance. One day in seven to be observed, set apart and observed, set apart by and to the Lord. From creation forward, it was meant to be observed on the last day of the week. It was called the Sabbath, but since, since the cross, post-cross, post-redemption, post-resurrection, it's to be observed on the first day of the week. And it's called the Lord's Day. And it is a day that Christ fulfilled, but did not abolish. And in Isaiah 58, we see what God promises those who observe the day. If you want to look at it, you can turn your Bibles to Isaiah 58, or you can look at the front of the bulletin. It was a part of our preparation for worship. In verses 13 to 14, it says this. The prophet says, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He says, treat the day as holy. For those who treat the day as holy, for those who refuse to ignore or reject the purpose for which the day was set apart, for those who honor and revere the day by choosing to do that which pleases the Lord, by doing what He desires, rather than pleasing themselves by doing what they desire, those who call the Sabbath a delight, which Joseph Piper defines as taking exquisite pleasure in the day and all that is a part of it, which includes worship, fellowship, and acts of mercy and service. So all those who are doing those things, he says they will experience delight in God. Again, Dr. Piper says, to take exquisite pleasure in the Lord is to be overwhelmed by His beauty and glory that are revealed in His attributes and work. To delight in God is to enjoy special communion and fellowship with Him, responding with gratitude and delight as He manifests His love to you. They will also experience spiritual fruitfulness. Spiritual fruitfulness like sanctification, mortification of sin, growth in grace. And they will also experience the assurance and enjoyment of being in possession of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and they will have the assurance and enjoyment of knowing that there is an inheritance being kept in heaven for them by God. Very practical, practical assurance and enjoyment. These promises were for God's people then, and these promises are for God's people now. And I say that with confidence because our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, said He Himself was the Lord of the Sabbath. And brothers and sisters, the Sabbath and that rhythm established, uh, it was a rhythm that was established at creation. It was a, it was a rhythm codified by the law. It was a rhythm that was, that was reinforced by Christ 
And it's a rhythm that the Westminster divines valued. It's a rhythm that we should maintain, strive to maintain, and do well to maintain in our lives today. Work and rest. Work six. Rest one. Work hard. Practice hard. Play hard. But on the seventh, do something different. Yes, God dwells with us every day by His Spirit who indwells us. Absolutely. But this day is different. He made it different. He set it apart as different. Rest. On the seventh day, rest and take a break. What can be done on, other six, on the other six days? And consider, you've heard me say this before, but consider creating a rhythm for your family, yourself. Consider that rhythm to include reverence as you make gathering with God's people on His day a priority. Gathering with your church family for worship and acts of mercy and service. Make that rhythm a a rhythm of remembrance where you take the time to focus on remembering and reorienting yourself to your Creator and your Redeemer. And then considering how the gospel affects you the other six days of the week. May that rhythm also include rest as you enjoy God. That exquisite pleasure. Taking exquisite pleasure in your God. Enjoying one another. Enjoying His creation. Enjoying the blessing of time. And the lack of deadlines and appointments and performance. Right, God, we said God created time. That's what those lines of delineation, statements of delineation, right? He was creating time. So it's a part of creation. And we've been called to subdue and to rule over. We should subdue and rule our time and not let it subdue and rule us. Shut down, unplug. I'm a firm believer, firm believer, have been for a long time, that the Lord does not and will not require you to forsake a day in order to fulfill His will for your life. Right? We, we, we think that we, can, we need to forsake the day to bring about something, to meet a goal when ultimately our goals come about by His will. particularly in light of the fact that he desires what he, well, the rest he desires for you and for me is a rest he desires to experience with you and with me. And it's a foretaste of what we will experience when Christ returns. Brothers and sisters, hear me again. It's what we were created for. Let's pray together. By your spirit and grace. Father, would you allow us and enable us to receive the word with faith and love. 
lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. For your glory and for our good and for the sake of Christ and His church, I pray. Amen.